could I ask you to please stand one more time uh, as we listen intently together to God's word. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is time for every matter, for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will be after him? Father, we thank you for, this, for your word and um, for all that it tells us, Lord. We, oh Lord our God, we are good at pointing fingers at others. And we are quick to condemn the injustice and the unrighteousness of others while especially distant and abstract others while we tend to ignore the very same sins in our own hearts, Lord. And so we, we pray that you would help us to see our own corruption, our own sins, help us to see the injustice that we commit against our families and friends on a daily basis. Help us to see the unrighteousness that pervades um, our hearts and causes us to forget about you. And help us to see that our only hope is Jesus and the salvation that you have graciously provided for us, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Please be seated. I made a joke a few weeks ago about how when you're studying for a passage, to preach a passage, um, oftentimes God will, will put you in contact with the sin or with the with the trouble of that passage uh, providentially. And so I made a joke that I would never, ever preach the book of Job. Uh, but that's not exactly true. Job is an amazing book. And um, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, uh, Job is, feels like the, the, the main theme of Job or the big the plot of Job is that, for those of you who know, Job uh, had all of, his, all of his daughters, all of his sons were killed. All of his wealth was taken away. And he was struck with this plague of boils all over his body, just lost everything. Uh, and his, his plea throughout the book was that, was that somehow God has overlooked something or, or it's not fair, he's forgotten about me and my righteousness, etc. God is just not dealing with me in justice and in righteousness. And the best part of the book after several chapters is when God finally comes and confronts Job on it. And he doesn't ever really answer his question directly. Rather, what he does is he puts Job through trials of ordeals. In other words, he sits Job down and he says, okay, you're going to ask me that question first. I'm going to ask you some questions. And he runs him through a bunch of questions about his knowledge. Do you know about how the foundations of the earth were set? Do you know where the storehouses of the wind are? Do you, all these things about creation that only God and his person would have the power and the ability to know he asked Job all these questions, and at the end of it, of course, Job says, oh, I don't know. 
And then he puts him through another test of ordeal where he asks Job, okay, do you have the power to create? Do you have the power to submit the Leviathan, the best line out of the whole thing? And he says, he goes, go to battle with the Leviathan. You will not soon forget it. (laughs) The Leviathan is a giant sea creature that's terrifying. And so the point is God sits Job down and ultimately by asking him these questions of do you have the knowledge of God? Do you have the power of God? He essentially is saying to him, look, you don't have the ability or the power or the knowledge to understand the, the answer to the question that you're asking me. In other words, it's above your pay grade. And so the answer to you is that you need to sit and trust me and praise me even when you don't understand what's going on. And of course, at the end of the book, all of his fortunes are restored double time. And we find out, we have, we're privy to chapters one and two, that it's a contest between God and Satan. And by Job sitting patiently through this, he's glorified God and glorified God in a substantial way for 2,000 years. So God, in, in the midst of it, Job is glorifying God, but he doesn't understand. And so the point is, what God is trying to say to him, and the point of, that, of the book of Job is that he never answers the why me question directly. Rather, indirectly, he says, you don't have the power, you don't, you're too weak to understand what it is that I'm saying to you, and so therefore your job is to turn from sin and trust me and let me handle it. And much the same thing is happening in this passage. The preacher is pointing us in somewhat the same direction. The message today that we have from the preacher out of the book of Ecclesiastes is that uh, because man is limited in his power by death and because man is unable to bring justice and righteousness into the world because of our weakness and our sin, that our job in that is to trust that God will make everything all right and that God will save us from ourselves. That's the big message. So here's the thesis streamlined big idea, the one lesson above all that, God, that, 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 that the preacher, that God wants us to get out of this, is that God limits human power and exposes human weakness so that we might turn to Jesus and be saved. God limits human power, exposes human weakness so that we might turn to Jesus and be saved. And we'll unpack that one phrase at a time. First, God limits human power. And God limits human power by death. There's a, the, this one commentator brought to mind the irony of Halloween in the United States. And the irony is this, that the very same people who go about turning their front yards into zombie graveyards, and the, people, the very same people who enjoy horrific and graphic violent movies are the very same people that do just about everything in our power as a culture to deny the real reality of death. And the commentator was bringing out the point. The irony of that is that it it exposes all of us, the tension in all of us, between the knowledge of the reality of death and also our knowledge that that um, that death is tragic and it's unfair. And so his theory is that Halloween is a way for us to like push the knowledge of it into the world of make-believe as a coping mechanism. But the truth is, and that's, I think that is true, I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. There's, you know, there, I did a, 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 a lecture on missions once, and I dug out the, 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 uh, the statistic that 
the United States church, the U.S. church spends the same amount of money on foreign missions as Americans spend on Halloween costumes for their pets. (laughs) Something's happening there, right? Something's going on right there. And so, but the point is that it is, that it is uh, ever this idea of knowing the reality of death, knowing the tragedy of it, knowing the wrongness of it. it. We're submerged in its reality. It is ever before us. And so the preacher wants us to know that. He wants us to put our faces in it, to strip away all our attempts to hide from it, to strip our attempts to make it into the, put it into the world of make-believe or do what we do to deny its reality. He wants us to put our faces in the reality that without God, that we ultimately share the same fate of death with every other animal. Listen to these verses again from verse 18 through 20. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man uh, happens to the beasts. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. That men die like animals is tragic and wrong, and everybody knows it and feels it. Now, this ver- these verses brought up a lot of controversy. People are thinking, does he contradicting what the Bible says, other word about the preeminence of man? Is he contradicting elsewhere about the, our, our ability to know whether our spirits go up or go or down? They're missing the point. They're taking it out of its context when they do that. In context, the preacher is not contradicting. He's assuming that we understand the preeminence of man, but he's saying that outside of God, outside the blessing of God, that we, are, we all share the same fate with the animals under the sun on this physical plane. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. And the most difficult verse, 721, this is the real one people get wrapped around the axle on. It says, for who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, this is what he's saying by that. He's saying without God, without the revelation from God, you would have and we would have no idea about what would happen after life on earth. We would have no idea about life after death. It would be pure guesswork on our part. Um, you know, thought experiment. Imagine that we had no revelation from God. Imagine just erase from your mind everything you know about the afterlife that you have been taught from the Bible and all we would know was that people stopped breathing and then their bodies started to decay. And we would be left with nothing but guesswork. Like the, the, the pharaohs. Like the ancient Egyptians mummifying people and their guesswork of the afterlife and trying to preserve the body. Or today in chirogenics, the guesswork that somehow we'll be able to freeze the body and then re-unfreeze it and bring it back to life in the future when some... Miraculous cures. Found funny how things never changed. Nothing really new under the sun there. But the point is that all we would be left with 
would be guessing and the devastation of sadness being separated separated from our loved ones. Now the preacher knows what happens after death. In, in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, the spirit returns to God who gave it and the body goes down to the earth. He knows what happens, but he's not telling us that here because he doesn't want to give us the answer too quickly. I think a lot of times when we're presenting the gospel, we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about Christian philosophy or how Christians view the world, we want to get right to the gospel when we jump over these hard and awful truths about what life means and what we would truly have if it weren't for God and if it weren't for the gospel. All we would have is the mystery and despair of death, guesswork as to what happened afterwards, uh, and, and devastation. And so the, the preacher wants us to just sit here and s- let it sink in. Death is tragic. You know, Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. Now, he knew that from experience, right? The point is that, you know, we hear about what happened in, you know, in France, that these terrorist attacks are 80 people, 90 people are killed, and it, it, it's heartbreaking. We put the flag on our Facebook post for a couple of weeks, then we get on with life. It's very different when someone you know and love and care about is dying. I, my father died 10 years ago. I watched him, watched him die. There, I, there had a lot of people in my life have died, but there's something extra difficult about watching your father die. I think it's the generational thing in a very real sense because he's your father. This is, I'm only one generation removed from him as I'm watching the cancer take over his body and then in the last few days as he begins to fight for breath and every ounce of strength in his body is just rattling as he fights to take in one more breath, one more breath and then finally the body gives out. There is no other time, there's no other time in my life when I have realized that is me. That's not an abstract reality. That's not somebody in France. That's my dad and the same fate. Someday I'm going to be the one that's put into hospice. I'm going to be the one who's rattling for breath. I'm going to be the one whose body gives out. And what happens then? That's the question on the table. So we all know that for men to die like animals is tragic and wrong. Psalm 49, it says that man in all his pomp, pomp means magnificent display, all the magnificence that God has given to man, even in all that magnificence, in all that pomp, man is like the beasts that perish. And why? We can ask that question. Why is it that men die? The preacher actually answers that question for us in this passage. When he says in verse 320, he says, All are from dust, and to dust all return. Now, when an Old Testament writer quotes an Old Testament passage, He's in a, in, in a culture that was big on memorizing giant sections of scripture, which the Jewish culture was. He's doing what, what one of my teachers, Albert Poyer, from a church in, in Colorado, he calls it a hyperlink. Which is when, when, a, when an Old Testament author quotes 
It's another passage from the Old Testament. It's a hyperlink that would bring the minds of the readers back to the passage in its entirety. And the passage from dust to dust is from what? It's from Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that God has created mankind to be the ruler all of, over all creation in humble submission to God his Lord. But that was not enough for us. The devil tempted us. The ultimate temptation was that we could be like God, determining for ourselves self-determination of good and evil. There's another one of those things that never changes, nothing new under the sun. The same thing that plagues us now. And we succumb to that in the very last verse, one of the last verses in that section is, is God says, look, the man, he's, he's eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he's become like us now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the fruit of the tree of life. Let us drive him out of the garden. In other words, in God's mercy, in our fallen state of rebellion against God, in his mercy, he drove us away from the tree of life that would have potentially allowed us to live in wickedness eternally. And even more than that, he drove us away from, from it uh, and allowed physical death to come into the universe as a warning shot over the bow. The physical death that we experience is to wake us up and to, re- and to help us realize that the physical death, the first death, is a, is a precursor of a model of the second death the eternal death that comes to those who do not trust in Christ at the final judgment. And by seeing that and waking us up to that, it is to help us to wake up and not to rationalize death as some natural part of the created order or to romanticize it in some way, shape, or fashion, but to, or not to make guesses at what it might mean, but to look at it square in the face for what it is and say, without God, that is my fate. That is the mercy of God limiting human power through the tragedy of death so that we might repent and turn to him. So point one, God limits human power through death. Point two, God exposes human weakness. One of the tragic deaths that we all felt um, became national news in the summer of 2011, if you remember, in the Summer of 2011, Americans were enjoying one of their favorite pastimes, the celebrity murder trial on television. This time it was Kathy, Casey Anthony, who was convicted of killing her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee Anthony. It was called the social media trial of the century. The one before OJ, I guess the OJ Simpson trial before that was the trial of the century. And At the end of the trial, she was found not guilty and our hearts ached because we so desperately we wanted justice for that little girl. Do you remember? Man, it wasn't that long ago. I didn't have kids then, but now I do. Now that I do have a two-year-old, now that I do have two young daughters, even my heart aches even more. Just so desperately wanted justice for that little girl. But what did we get? We got a bunch of, we got attorneys who were highly skilled at exploiting technicalities and the process of the law. And justice wasn't served. Look at verse 316. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in the place 
of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. In the same way that that the preacher wants us to take a hard look at the reality of death, he also wants us to take a hard look at the pervasiveness and the persistence of injustice and unrighteousness. Those things are pervasive. And what was so frustrating about that, that trial, was that it was happening uh, it was happening in the very highest level of justice in our, in our culture. Our very best efforts, the court system, the United States court system, the place of justice and neutrality, the very place, our very best effort where we put it all in to do our very best to make sure that justice was served there in the very heart of that place of justice was, was, was massive injustice. I mean, this, you know, you kind of... We kind of expect injustice, you know, in everyday life, right? I mean, I know what I'm capable of. You know what you're capable of. Uh, we kind of expect it, you know. It's like living in the, under the flight path. First you notice it, and then, you know, after a while, you just, you know, that's just how it is. You don't even notice the injustice that surrounds us any longer. Um, but in that trial, it was our very best effort to produce justice, and it failed. Because human sin affects everything human. That's the big problem. There's not justice in the place of justice because there's humans in the place of justice, and our sin affects everything we do, even our best efforts to bring justice. We are, like I said in the prayer earlier, we're involved in the ladle ministry down, downtown. We serve homeless people. We uh, in many different ways. And so part of that, uh, John Savage, our own John Savage has been hired to be the director of that ministry here at this church. And so as part of that, we've been, uh, he's been doing this a lot more, but I've got to tag along with him on a couple of meetings with other homeless agencies. And one of these meetings, we, we just got into this conversation about how even, how the homeless ministries themselves are kind of warring against one another uh, to, to be the top homeless agency or to get this contract or to be into this building and whatnot. And it's not that those people are evil. All of the people involved in those agencies are desperately there because they want to make a difference and they want to help the homeless. But the sin in their hearts just kind of spills out and there's injustice even in our institutions to bring justice in the world. And it's from top to bottom. U.S. court system, homeless charities, and in our very own hearts. We know about that, right? There's a great story that Ted Hamilton, our pastor from New Life, used to tell. I think he told this story about uh, one of his pastor friends who, who, who went to the kitchen to get ice cream for he and his wife, and he filled bowls for ice cream, and on his way up the steps, he's weighing them out to see which one had the more ice cream, and guess who is going to get that bowl? He said, I was weighing out the ice cream to see which one was heavier, and it hit me. Just the, had the depth of the injustice that exists in my heart I'm ready. I'm sitting here calm trying to cheat my wife out of, out of equal share of ice cream. Not true? You all laugh. That's an admission of guilt by laughing. <laughs> I want justice. I want it for me, and I want it right now. And it's persistent. After 50 years of the war on poverty, we have more poverty than ever. 
In all our efforts to curb crime, we still have crime. In our efforts to cease war, we still have war. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's illiteracy, poverty, slavery, racism, war, you name it. They stick with us. Jesus said the poor will always be with you because you'll always be with you. And even your best attempts to solve these problems are going to be marred by the own unrighteousness, the own injustice of your own hearts. It's just going to spill out and it's going to continue. Well, that's only half the story. The other half the story is, is the second half of that verse. That And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. In the Hebrew mind, when they say place of righteousness, he probably means the temple, the religious institutions. So not only our court systems are corrupt, and our court systems, the place of justice are unjust, but the place of righteousness, the place where we put our best efforts in to be holy and to seek after righteousness and to seek after God, even in those places, we see wickedness. In Jesus' day, we're going through the Gospel of John here on the regular weeks of the month, and we're just seeing just the, just the stunning awfulness of the chief priests and the Pharisees who are so convinced of their own rightness that they are putting their own authority over the Word of God and, in the, and are in process of murdering the Son of God, and they think that they are perfectly righteous in doing it. But that, that thread goes all the way through history, no matter where it is in the church, from the religious wars of the Middle Ages to, uh, you know, to Benny Hinn using the name of Jesus to defraud the poor out of what little money they have, to evil men infiltrating the Roman church to commit sexual immorality, our own churches as well. Man, these things break our hearts when we think about them too long. Why? Because even in our best efforts, we fail at justice and we fail at righteousness and it's consistently with us. God has limited our power through death. In his mercy, he's also limited the potential that we have for damage by our human wickedness through death, a pervasive and persistent wickedness that we see even in the very best efforts to bring justice and to bring righteousness to the earth in our courts and in our churches. Does this depress you? It should. the, the, The preacher wants us to just feel the weight of this. This is this is reality on earth. I mean we whitewash it, we you know, we do all kinds of things to push this reality out from under our minds, but when we sit and we really think this is the reality we live in, you should be asking yourself, if it's true that there is, we are incapable because of our human sin of bringing justice to the earth, if we are incapable of bringing true righteousness to the earth, if we are incapable of conquering death, this huge problem that we have, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope? Who would save us from this body of death? Sunday School Answer says, Jesus. Point three, so that we might turn to Jesus and be saved. The preacher does not leave us 
without hope. Read verse 317. And so I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now on the one hand, that's fantastic news. That there is going to be a day of reckoning. That all the wrong that's been done to you all the wrong that's been done to us, all the evil that we have seen, pervasive, persistent evil worldwide, eventually God is going to make it all right and God, the righteous judge who is able to judge in perfect righteousness, will make it all okay. And that's a good thing. Because imagine a world without it. In a world without it, the bad guys all get away. In a world without it, they got away with it. You know, there's, a, there's an author named Miroslav Volf who, who, who's written, he's done a lot of work in ministry with, uh, with the people in the Balkans under the civil wars and the ethnic cleansing that they went through. And he makes the argument that, out, that only in America, only in a pleasant suburb can the idea of a God who doesn't judge fly. Because when you look people in the face whose towns have been leveled pillaged, their women raped, their brothers and sisters stabbed and killed, and you go to those people and say, don't retaliate, they're going to say, are you, why? Why would I not retaliate? And he says, the only thing that can keep us from retaliation, from the, from the, from the endless cycle of retaliation, is the belief that God will make it all right in the end, that God will be the righteous judge to take care of all the injustice, of all the unrighteousness that we see. Uh, and, and that's a good thing because it, it, without it, our spirits would be crushed and our desperate and deepest longings to see justice, to see fairness would be without answer. But, oh, this does confront us with another terrible problem, doesn't it? Because if God must judge evil and God must judge unrighteousness and God must judge injustice to make everything right, then that means he also must judge us. And that's a scary thought. There's a, one of my favorite pastors named Vodi Bauckham. He tells this great story about he went to a college campus and he was speaking at the college campus and uh, some freshman just got out of philosophy 101 and was newly armed with the argument of evil, came up to him and said, hey, how can you account for a God who is supposed to be uh, truly good and all-powerful and yet allows evil to exist in the world? Otherwise, he's not good because he allows evil or he's powerless to stop it. How do you reconcile those both together? It's a very old, 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 old charge against the Christian idea of God. It's been answered for a good couple thousands of years. People always bring it up. Vodi did something different. He looked at the kid and he says, you're not asking me the question right. He's like, you ask the question right, then I'll answer you. And so the kid was like, okay, how, how do I ask the question right? And he said, the question is not why would a good, all-powerful God allow an evil... The question is why would a good, all-powerful creature... would Scratch that. <laughs> The question is not why would a good and powerful God allow evil in the world, but why 
would a good, all-powerful God allow an evil creature like myself with a heart bent towards injustice and unrighteousness to continue in the world? That's the hard question. You know, people that stand up and say, we must deal with evil. Okay, let's start with you. (laughs) God must deal with injustice. All right, you first. I want justice for me. I don't want justice for you for the sins that I did to you. And so that's the question we have to answer, and it's the question that the preacher points us to. Let's read again verses 16 and 17. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. There's three elements in there. There's injustice in the court system, corruption in the religious establishment, and the justice of God. Can you think of a place where all three of those things converge into one? Let me read something from 1 Peter, talking about Jesus. Although he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. At the cross, at the cross, the injustice of the courts, the unrighteousness of the religious establishment, and the justice of God came down and poured out all of the wrath due us for our injustice and for our unrighteousness on to Jesus as our representative, as our champion, and he absorbed all that evil and sin and took it into death and was raised on the third day for our justification. That's how we answer that question. That's the only way that we can answer the question, how can God remain just and righteous in his character and yet forgive sin? Because he has poured out his justice on Jesus. And so you know what that means? And I'll close with this. What that means is that God has spent his justice, convicted, poured out his wrath, sentenced Jesus for the crimes that we have committed. And so what that means, therefore, is that because it would be unjust for God to convict two people of the same crimes, that means that our salvation, that means that our assurance in our salvation is based in the character of God. It is based in his goodness and his character of not being able to accuse two people of the same crime. Knowing that Jesus has paid the penalty for all our sins assures us and lets us know that we are forgiven, that we stand before God as his adopted children in love. And therefore, we are free to worship him and to serve him and to go out into the world as blessing and as lights because of who we are in Christ. Amen? Let me close with this quote. 
It's also from Miroslav Volv. It says, when God sets out to embrace the enemy, the result is the cross. On the cross, the dancing circle of self-giving and mutual indwelling divine persons opens up for the enemy. In the agony of the passion, the movement stops for a brief moment and a fissure appears so that sinful humanity can join in. We, the others, we, the enemies, are embraced by the divine persons who love us with the same love in which they love each other and therefore make space for us within their own eternal embrace. Is there hope for us? Yes. Not because of who you are or your justice or your righteousness, but there's hope for us in Christ and in the love of Christ by his life, death, and resurrection that has conquered death and that brings with it the death of injustice. Amen? Amen. Amen.